to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. We're continuing in our sermon series called The Story of Jesus, and we've been tracking the story of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, and we are once again back in Luke chapter 7. So again, I'll start off with a question. I do that a lot of times. makes you have to wake up and think. Have you ever said the wrong thing at the wrong time? We all have, right? You know, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking back in my life, and I thought of one particular wrong thing I said at the wrong time, and it actually fits the story today. So I thought, Lord, you gave me this remembrance so I could share it with everybody about one of my embarrassing moments as a youth pastor. Uh, Years and years and long years ago, in our second position, we were youth pastors in a little town, and um, unfortunately, the father of a young lady in our youth group had passed away. And after the funeral was all over, we were doing kind of a follow-up visit, and we went to the family's home, and the, the wife, now a widow, was sitting there. The daughter that was in our youth group was there, and then an older daughter was there, and they were grieving and all that kind of stuff. And we're sitting there in the living room, and I'm just trying to make conversation. And, and I just look around, and I say, man, you guys must really like plants. You've got a lot of plants here. Some of you are laughing. You're in a, the oldest daughter just looked at me with this look on her face. And says, They're from the funeral. <laughs> I felt so bad. They had all these plants that had been brought and sent to the funeral, and they had them all over their living room. And, and I just, I don't even remember what I said after that. I, I just, my mind went blank. It's like, okay, live and learn. And, you know, when you talk about saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, especially around the death of a loved one or something, you just, sometimes you don't know exactly what to say. And, and most all of us have been through that, experiencing the death of a loved one, and some people just seem to have the right words to say, and some people, they just say the wrong thing. I think that most of the time, that's not their intent. They just don't know what to say. But it's interesting because in the story we're going to look at today from Jesus' life, Jesus says something that under normal circumstances would be inconceivable. He says something that's like, you don't, you don't say that. Because as we're going to read the story in just a moment, Jesus is at a funeral, and he tells this grieving widow who just lost her only son, he says, don't cry. Boy, at least I never said anything like that. Well, let's look at the story here in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. It says, soon afterward, after what? After the events that came before, a great time of teaching. Then Jesus heals the centurion's servant from a distance. After this, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples in a great crowd went with him. His fame has spread all the things. He's got this, he's got his disciples. He's got all these people that are just kind of following from place to place to place. And so they're following him in verse 12. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Don't cry. 
Then he came up and he touched the beer. And yes, that is the correct way to pronounce it. I looked it up because it sounded weird to me. I thought, maybe it's supposed to be buyer. No, it's pronounced beer. I'll explain what it is in a minute. Then he came up and he touched the beer and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So Jesus wasn't necessarily going to this funeral. He just encountered the funeral procession. And he tells the grieving mother, who's also a widow, don't cry. But I guess he can get away with it because he knows what's going to happen. He raises the young man from the dead. I'm sure the mother didn't mind at all that Jesus told her not to cry because he gave her a great reason to have phenomenal, overwhelming joy. The title of my message today is Jesus Gives Life. Last week I was talking about what I was looking at preaching this week and I said, I don't know, have the exact title. I'm going to talk about how Jesus uh, brings life to dead things or brings dead things to life. And I thought, I just keep it real simple. Jesus gives life. And Jesus does give life in so many different ways. And we're going to just focus on a couple of them that we see illustrated in this, serv- in this, in this passage. And it's ways in which he wants to give life to us too. And it's ways in which he's already given life probably to many, maybe maybe most of you here and those of you that are watching online, but also in ways that we have some effect over. So we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing, living the right way so we can experience the fullness of the life he wants to give us. So we're going to talk about how Jesus gives life. Now, I want to go back through the story because there's some cultural things there, some things that maybe we wouldn't totally understand unless we understood their culture and the background and such. It says that Jesus and his disciples and this great crowd that is following him are approaching this city called Nain. And Nain is just a little tiny town. It's the only place that's mentioned in the Bible. It's just a couple of miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. It's not too awful far from Capernaum where Jesus' kind of headquarters for ministry is. That's where he lives and stuff, and he travels out from that place. But they're traveling around. Jesus is teaching, preaching, doing miracles, uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God, that kind of stuff. And so he approaches this town. And I can just picture it in my mind that you see the town kind of in the distance. And as he's coming, you see this procession coming out of town because there's been a death. When someone dies, you do what little you can do to prepare the body, which is a whole lot less than we do today. And you wrap it in some kind of cloth and you carry it out of town to be buried because that's where you put bodies. Bodies were considered very, very unclean. In fact, uh, according to to Jewish ceremonial law about the way you could get the most unclean in the sight of God ceremonially is to be even near or touch a dead body. 
And so you dealt with it as quickly as possible. And, and God gave allowances, and the people gave allowances for, for when somebody died as a family, you deal with it, and then you're good to go. And so you would wrap that body in a cloth with some kind of anointing, oil, perfume, whatever, and you would place it on a bier. It was not like a coffin like we think of, a nice fi- fancy or not fancy box that you put them in and shut the lid. It was basically like a plank that was carried like a stretcher. And you set the body out on it and you would begin to leave town and usually it was the family members that would start the procession. And obviously they're mourning. In this case, this woman is mourning and and she's in a terrible situation. She's already lost her husband. We don't know when, how, under what circumstances, but at least she had her son. Only one son. But now somehow her only son has died. She has no one left. And that has a lot of implications that we don't even understand today, but we'll get to that a little bit later on. But she's alone. And so the family would escort, would lead that body out of town, and other people that were friends would gather along behind. But because the Jewish people had such a respect for people and their passing and that kind of stuff, in a, in a town, you would wend your way through the town, and as you did, people would come out of their houses to show their respect, sort of like, you know, today cars would pull off to the side of the road when a hearse goes by. But the people would join in the procession so that by the time you got done, everybody from town that could was following along behind to go to the place where they would lay that person to rest. And so Jesus is coming toward the town. This procession is coming out. And it says that Jesus saw her. I almost made that a point in my message, but God led me a little bit different way. But, but let me just throw that out there. Jesus saw her. And I know that's talking about with his eyes, he knew he was, she was there. But can I tell you that Jesus sees you? Jesus sees you in your pain. Jesus sees you. See, I could do a whole another message on that. I, got, I don't need to get sidetracked too, too, too soon. Jesus sees where you're, at, you're out, at, where you're at, and he has compassion. That was the next thing it says. It says he saw her and he had compassion. I just, I just feel like maybe somebody, a couple of somebody's need to hear that today instead of the main part of the message that, that wherever you're at, whatever you're dealing with, Jesus sees you. And he has compassion. He has compassion. And then he says the unthinkable, don't cry. <laughs> and the lady's probably like, who is this guy? But then Jesus touches the beer where the body is. Again, what would normally make him tremendously unclean. But can you tell you, nothing can make Jesus unclean. Jesus would touch lepers, and that was another big deal that would make you unclean. But instead of making Jesus unclean, Jesus made the unclean clean. You know, just like he brings life to the dead, he makes the unclean clean. And the same thing's true here. He touches the beer, and he tells the young man, arise. And the guy gets up, and he says he gives him, I don't know what he did, but it was described, he gave him back to his mother. And, and it doesn't describe, but you can imagine the joy and that mother, the rejoicing, and of course the response of the people is like, God's shown up. Now the people don't realize Jesus is God yet, okay? I mean, Luke, that's one of the reasons Luke is writing is to introduce Jesus. And he starts out small, little by little, people gaining understanding of who Jesus is. Well, here's a very important man. Oh, here's a man who teaches with authority. Oh, here's a man who has miraculous power from God. Oh, man, this maybe he's the Messiah, that expected deliverer that God's going to send. And it won't be till later that they actually realize that Jesus is God come in the flesh. 
But at the best of their understanding, man, this, Jesus, he's a great prophet. He's one sent from God to speak for God, to act for God. God's power is working through him. God has come to help us. And that reputation spreads throughout community. Neat little story. Jesus gives life. I want to share four ways from this story that Jesus gives life and how he wants to give life to us today. First of all, Jesus gives life to people who are dead physically. Jesus gives life to people who are dead physically. Somebody dies... Jesus gives life. They say, well, that doesn't happen very often. Not yet it doesn't. In fact, in all of the stories of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's only three accounts of Jesus bringing someone back to life, and this is one of them. Trivia time. Can anybody tell me what the other two are? Lazarus. He's the most famous, most popular, whatever. Does anybody know who the other one is? The little girl, 12-year-old girl. Yep. And as we continue through Luke, we'll see the story of the 12-year-old girl. The story of Lazarus is only in the Gospel of John, so we won't see that in this series. Three times, Jesus brought somebody back to life. It was to meet a need, obviously, but he didn't just raise anybody and everybody back to life. It was also part of the process of revealing who he was. Things that would point to eventually him knowing that this truly is the Son of God. God come in the flesh. There are a couple of other times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, when God exerted power through an individual to raise people from the dead. But I said specifically that one of my points is Jesus gives life to people who are dead physically. It's like, why are you making that a point? Because he doesn't really do that today. Now, maybe you, like I, have heard accounts of times through history since Jesus and even in current day of other places in the world or someplace where the power of God was manifested to raise somebody from the dead. And if we weren't there, we can't know, is that really true or not? Or did somebody make that up or whatever? I do know that in the course of my life, I've heard accounts of at least once, if maybe twice, from somebody that was actually there that saw somebody raised from the dead. People I trust. So God can still do that. And when he has occasion to, to accomplish his purposes, he will do that. But he doesn't usually do that, does he? No. You know, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. We're all going to die. But can I tell you that these pictures, these stories in Jesus' life of him raising the dead is meant to not only point to the fact of who he is as the Son of God and God himself, but it's to point to the truth that Jesus brings life to people who are physically dead, and that includes us. Now, I'm not promising you that when you die at your funeral, Jesus is going to raise you up. I'm not making, my, I'm not making light, but I'm not, I'm not being overly serious either. I'm not promising you that because the Bible makes it very clear that every person that's ever lived will be brought back to life physically. It's just when I made that point, you might think of here, you know, in this life. No, I, every single person has ever lived, when they die, that's not the end. It's not the end. Every person will be raised back to life. 
And for those of us who put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, this is a great hope. I, my wife and I, we, we, we participated and, and conducted and been involved in so many funerals over the years. And, and you have attended and been involved and, and been close to people some of you even recently, and, and I hope this does not cause any kind of problems for you, but I, I'm just saying we understand what it's like to go through that. But those of us that are believers, those of us who've put our trust in Christ, we have that hope. We have that joyous thought that, yes, we are separated now. But if our loved one who's gone on before knew Jesus... And we know Jesus is just a temporary, a temporary separation. Jesus gives life to people who are dead physically. But why doesn't God do it more? Why doesn't God do it for everybody? I mean, he can do it. Why doesn't he? And the reason why is because God has something better for us. Now, the people that are left behind say, well, what's better for me is for them to be around a little bit longer, and I understand that. You know, even the people that Jesus rose from the dead, it was only temporary. Lazarus died again. This man died again. The little girl he raised up that was 12 years old, at some point in her life, she died again. It's only temporary. Even if he were to raise up a bunch of people today, it's only going to be temporary, but that's a good thing. I think back to the Garden of Eden. This just popped in my head. It wasn't even in my notes. When Adam and Eve sinned, and it says that God kicked them out of the garden and put an angel there so they could not get back in, and the main reason was so that they could not eat of the tree of life. That was a blessing because why would they want to live forever in a sinful, fallen state? Dealing with all the pain. I mean, this world is full of a lot of joy and goodness, but dealing with all the pain and something. No, God has something better. You see, God has an eternity prepared when he's going to eventually put an end to all the sin, suffering, pain, and evil in this world, reestablish the goodness that he created at creation. And we'll enjoy that in his presence forever. So at some point, we've got to die. But the good news is that that's not just it. Jesus brings life to those who are dead physically because he's got a better plan for us. Our current body is subject to decay and death. How many of you are already experiencing that? Yeah, me too. I got aches and pains that I didn't even know about a couple years ago. You know, and I'm only 62. And some of you are like, you're a young guy. Thank you. Thank you for that. Some of these young people say, yeah, you are old. Thank you for that. This current body is subject to decay and death, but God has a glorified, perfect body. It's going to last for all eternity, but it's not going to have all this mess we've got to deal with. He lets us die because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There has to be a transformation. And one of our greatest hopes is that one day Jesus is going to come back, make everything right, and take us to be with him. We're going to have that glorified body. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, okay, the Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians four. When he was with them, he talked about some end time events and things, and he'd gone on 
in his travels. And apparently, they thought, as they rightly should, because it's true, been true all through, that Jesus could come back at any time. And all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but over time, some of their loved ones had started to die. And it's like, well, we didn't think this was going to happen. We thought Jesus was going to come back before any of us died. But now people are, what happens to these people? You know, you know, Jesus is going to come we're going to be, but what happens to the people that die? And so Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brethren or brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Those being asleep being those who have died. It's a euphemism for people that have died. We don't want you to grieve as other people who don't have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, He says, we're not going to get to meet Jesus first. In fact, we're going to be second. He goes on to say, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We can encourage one another. Jesus gives life to people who have died physically. And when they knew Jesus and we know Jesus, we will be together again. If you want to follow up this some more, read 1 Corinthians 15 sometime this week. The whole chapter is about resurrection and how God's going to do it and what it's going to be like and our glorified bodies. And we're guaranteed it because Jesus was raised from the dead. And since he was raised from the dead, he's the beginning and it guarantees it for us. But that does raise a question that I want to deal with because somebody came to me and asked me about this. What happens between a believer's death and this resurrected body because we don't get our resurrected bodies till Jesus comes back. And that's an important question. We deal with it all the time uh, with, with funerals and family members and things like that. And there are some good Christian people that believe, I don't happen to agree with them, that believe that from the time a believer dies until this resurrection day that they are no longer conscious that they're kind of in a limbo state. They call it soul sleep. There's not conscious of anything that's going on. And they base it on the way Paul words this passage and some other passages that talk about people that have died as being asleep. My opinion, and that of many Bible scholars, is that's just, talk, that's just a euphemism. It's a way of softening instead of saying, hey, all those people that died. No, the people that are asleep in Jesus. But there's other support for the fact that when someone dies in Christ, that they're not just unconscious and not aware of what's going on, which would not be a bad thing, but a couple other things in Scripture. You see, Paul was talking one time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he says, you know what? I don't know how long I'm going to be around. I could die for my faith. I could live. And to be honest with you, I don't know which one I want. He says, if I'm alive, I can do more work for the Lord, and I can have more interaction with you guys, and that would be great. But man... If I die, I'll be in the presence of Jesus. That's that passage perhaps you've heard where he says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
And so if we leave this body knowing Jesus, Paul says we are present with the Lord. We're not in some kind of unconscious state waiting for the resurrection. But then let me just give you another point on this. Again, somebody asked me to talk about this. I said, man, my sermon coming up is a great time to take a few moments and talk about this. When you read the book of Revelation, it talks about end times, that all these things are going on. It's not really easy to understand. But every once in a while, there is a flash to heaven where you see what's going on in heaven. And in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, you can read it later. It talks about how in heaven, there are these men and women who have been killed for their faith all through history. And they're crying out to God, God! When are you going to bring justice? When are you going to settle the account? When are you going to take up our cause? We were put to get death um, uh, undeservedly. When are you going to take care of that? And God says, wait a little while. Well, you see, if they had died and they were just in some kind of unconscious state, they wouldn't be there to ask God those questions. So, I just threw that little bit of theology out there because I got a question, and I thought, if this person's questioning it, maybe a couple other people are too. But that, again, is part of the encouragement. It's encouraging to know that one day we'll be with Jesus with glorified bodies. But it's also encouraging to know that that will happen, at least our presence with Jesus, not the glorified bodies yet, will happen the, day, the moment we leave this life. But one day we will have those glorified bodies. God has a glorified resurrection body for each and every one of us because Jesus gives life to people who are dead physically. So we need to do what Paul says. We need to be encouraged and we need to encourage one another with those words. The second type of life. Number two, Jesus gives life to hope when there seems to be no hope. Jesus gives life to hope when there seems to be no hope hope. Look at this story. And we're talk- I'm talking about the mother, the grieving widow who's now alone. This, this woman who, however, some, some way lost her husband at some previous time. And she had this son who I'm sure she cherished. And now her son is gone. And we can picture, we can maybe somehow relate how that would be to be all alone. You don't have your life partner anymore. You don't have any children anymore. And you're alone. You are lonely. And you're going to spend the rest of your life, however long or short that is, that way. And we can relate to that part. But this is even a bigger deal in their culture because in their culture, only men owned property. Only men owned dwellings. Only men primarily made the living. The wife would do uh, all kinds of things to help add to that. But basically, if you did... I'm not saying this is the way it should be. This is just the way culture was then. If you were a woman and did not have a man to care for you, you were left to beg, to sell yourself into prostitution... Or find some other way, find, find somebody to somehow take you into their home and care for you, which was not an obligation on anybody except family. That's why having lots of children, one of the reasons having lots of children, especially sons, was so important. And another thing that was part of their society is that as people grew older, the children took care of the parents when they couldn't take care of their parents, and the parents couldn't take care of themselves anymore. Again, another reason why having children was so important. And so this woman is not only mourning the loss of her family, loneliness, but she is devastated. She has no hope. She's facing poverty. 
unless somebody, and I'm sure there probably were plenty of people that would help however they could, but unless somebody who was not family would take her in and help her out sometime. And so many families were just so tight trying to take care of their own families. It's just a very uncertain thing. She has no hope. She has no hope. If you could ask that woman that morning as she is preparing for this funeral procession, if you could have anything today, what would you want? And I've heard people say something like this at funerals. If I could just have my son back. If I could just have my son back. If I could just have my friend back. If I could just have my whatever back. And that's exactly what Jesus did for her. In her case, he gave life to hope where there seemed to be no hope. Now, I am not by any means trying to promise to you that whatever area of your life where you are struggling to have hope, that Jesus is going to give you exactly what you want. That is not scriptural. That's not the way life works. But I can tell you you that Jesus always offers hope in some way, shape, or form in whatever situation you are in. No matter what you are facing, no matter how bad it may seem, no matter how hopeless it seems, there is still hope when you know Jesus Christ. My daughter pointed something out a while ago. And my wife printed up on a piece of paper. She's got it hanging on a closet, in the, in the closet, cabinet in the closet. And it says, even in the word hopeless, there is, no hope, there is hope. Because hope's part of the word. I mean, it's a semantic thing, but still, it points out, even in the word hopeless, there's hope in the middle of it. And that's true in life. Now, if we don't know Jesus, we may truly be in a situation where there is no hope. But when we have a relationship with God, there's always hope. There's always hope. Life may not go exactly the way we like. We're still going to face pain and suffering and death and difficulty and sickness because that's part of living in this sinful, fallen world. That's why it's such a great encouragement that we don't, we're not going to live in this forever. We're going to have perfect bodies in a perfect world one day. But even in this world, there's always hope. Sometimes life in general, or perhaps a certain circumstance in your life, may seem like there's no hope. Maybe your life's basically pretty good, but when you look at your finances, man, it just seems like there's no hope. Or you look at your marriage and you say, there just doesn't seem to be any hope. Or a certain relationship with a parent or a child or a grandparent or a grandchild or a friend or a person at work, there is no hope. Can I tell you that there's always hope? with Jesus. He may not do exactly what you want, when you want, but there's always hope. I think one of the verses that we as believers cling to along these lines, and we take it a little out of context, but that's okay because the basic principle is still true, is Jeremiah 29 11. How many of you recognize that reference? Right? Yeah, we quote it all the time, don't we? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's how the English Standard Version puts it. Great promise. But how many people know the context in which that promise was given? That promise actually wasn't given to an individual, it was given to a nation. It was given to God's people. He said, what a great promise. God says, I've got great things in the future for you. I want you to experience life. I want you to experience hope. You know, I've got great things. But the context of this message is that it's given to God's people who have been exiled hundreds of miles away to a foreign land. 
And they're there because of their disobedience to God. And they had disobeyed God so many times and God had, as a loving Heavenly Father, had disciplined them in various ways. Uh, you know, he'd, send a, he'd allow a famine to come. He'd allow another nation to attack them. He'd, they'd cry out to God that he'd deliver them. But they kept rebelling against God until finally God says, okay, it's time for an extended timeout. He allowed them to be conquered by Babylon and carried off into captivity. And there were false prophets that were prophesying, don't worry about it, we're God's people, he's going to release us in just a couple of years. But God spoke to his true prophet, Jeremiah, and he says, you need to set the record straight. Read the whole chapter. So Jeremiah sends a letter, because Jeremiah is still back in Jerusalem. He says, you know, there's these people that are false, they're prophesying that you're going to be delivered. He says, it's not going to happen, I'm sorry to tell you that. God says, settle down where you are, build a good life, keep serving God and then that's where it leads up to this he says because God says he hasn't given up on you he says I've got a plan for you plan for welfare yes you've been sent into captivity but my ultimate plan for you is not evil I want to give you hope in a future and God even told them in the message when that would happen anybody want to take a guess or anybody know how long it's going to be before the full fulfillment of this promise is going to take place James, what is it? What? Close, 70 years. He says, I will deliver you in 70 years. Some of the people wouldn't even be alive then, but their children would be. Basically, the message is, I have not given up on you. I'm not trying to destroy you. All my plans for you are good, but some things have got to be worked out. Now, that's not as much fun as believing that God says he's got a plan for you, a hope in the future, so tomorrow he's going to deliver me from all my problems. Have any of you experienced that actually happening? You claim that verse, and the next day all your problems disappear? Well, can I just tell you that that's not because you're not spirit, that's not because you're, quote, not spiritual enough. It's because that's not the way things work in the kingdom of God. But the promise is still true. God loves his people. He never gives up on his people, even when they're in a mess because of their own making. Even it's because they've rebelled against God, God never gives up on them, and he wants them to have hope that he will work in their circumstances and bring about good as they trust in him. So Jesus brings life to hope when there seems to be no hope. Hope That whole passage, Jeremiah 29, 11 to 14, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. As I said, when you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, there is always hope. I've said so many times, there's so many promises in the Bible that I just absolutely love. I'll quote a verse, that's one of my favorites, but I can tell you that one of my top five favorites, I don't really have them categorized, I can just tell you it's in the top five, is Romans 8, 28 where Paul tells us that, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Doesn't say that all things are good. 
There's a lot of things that happen to us that aren't good, and they're not necessarily sent by God. Obviously, they're allowed by God, but it does say that whatever comes our way, God can bring good out of it. If we know Him, love Him, serve Him, and we allow Him to work in our lives. And so Jesus gives life to hope even when there seems to be no hope. And I just want to tell you today, if you need hope, do you need hope today? Do you need hope just for life in general? Life just seems so, or for a specific situation? Look to Jesus. I'm not promising you it's all going to clear up tomorrow. But I can tell you that there's always hope in Jesus. The third thing, Jesus gives life to people who are dead spiritually. I started off with Jesus gives life to people who are dead physically. Just kind of taking an order and how it comes in the story here. Jesus gives life to people who are dead spiritually. What do I mean by that? Well, in the story, at the very, very end, after he raises this um, young man from the dead, the people are responding with joy and fear. That fear there is like awe. It's like, oh my goodness, who is this guy? Such power. He must be a great prophet. God is at work in our midst. God's come to help us. The thing that you may not know, and you can read this later, is that this whole thing has been staged by God to remind the people there of something. You see, all the people that were there, as soon as this happened, they immediately thought of two stories. One that's in 1 Kings 17 and one that's in 2 Kings 4. You can read them later. The prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. Because during their ministries, one followed the other, but during both of them, there was an episode in which they were called upon to be used by God and his power to raise a son to life and give that son back to his mother. You see, I think that this opportunity here was to touch that mother, to touch that son, that Jesus here, but was also to bring people's minds back to that, to point to who Jesus is. That here is another one like the great heroes of our past. You see, for the Jewish people, the two greatest heroes were Moses and Elijah. Moses and, and now there's another one like Elijah that's here. God's doing something special. Again, it's to draw that attention there. It's to draw attention to who Jesus is. And again, at this point, people still don't know exactly who he is, but it's one step closer for them to understand who he is and what he came to do. And what he came to do was to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins so that we could have eternal life. And that's why I say here that Jesus gives life to people who are dead spiritually because the Bible makes it very clear that we are dead dead spiritually until we come to know Jesus. And we can do absolutely nothing about it until we come to Jesus. Paul writes about it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, every single one of us, every single person who's ever been born and lived is dead spiritually. 
among a bunch of other people that are dead spiritually. No relationship with God. No true connection with God. No hope of a relationship with God. And he says, and we all did this together and we didn't have a relationship. So we just followed our flesh. We just did what felt good. We just, we just did whatever we wanted. Involved in all kinds of life. And we got this enemy. He talks about the, 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 the prince of the power of the air. Talking about the devil, you know, who's influencing, trying to keep people away from God. He says, that's just the way we live life. And we were dead. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 4. But God. I, I need to do a sermon series sometime on the but gods. You know? Situation was this way, but God got involved. It says here, but God being rich in mercy, meaning he didn't have to do it. We didn't deserve it, but he loved us so much. He did it anyway. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, I started with the resurrection body because that's where it started in the story. But we have no hope of a resurrection body to spend with God and all that is good in eternity unless we've been raised to life spiritually first. But that's okay. Jesus brings to life those who are dead spiritually to those who turn to him. A very common verse, Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord, Christ Jesus our Lord. See, right there, it just says what we deserve, what we've earned, the, the life we've lived, the position we're in. We have earned death. We are dead. But because of what Jesus did and through what Jesus did, see, we've got to do something. We've got to connect with that. We've got to come to him. We can have eternal life. One more verse along these lines. 1 John 5 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Now see, this is where we get to the good news. And the good news is preceded by the bad news. Because the good news isn't good news unless you know the bad news. And the bad news, hope I didn't confuse you there. Make sure you're still awake. The bad news is that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins and we are all separated from God and we have no relationship with him and we never will unless he does something about it and we respond to it. But he did. You see, that's the essence of the gospel. God himself, a member of the Trinity. I should probably shouldn't say Trinity. That raises all kinds of other questions. But God the Son, Jesus Christ. Was God in eternity past? was God when he came to earth in the form of man, both God and man, and will be God forever. But he came to this earth to live a life that we could not lie, live so that when he died a death he did not deserve in the way that he and God set things up, that that death paid the price for our sins. And so God offers us it a gift. If we're willing to come to him and admit that we're sinners willing to do the best we can with his help to leave our sin behind and accept what Jesus did for us, he will forgive us and he'll make us alive spiritually and one day physically with that glorified body to spend forever with him. But that also means that those who reject that will not spend eternity with him. They'll spend eternity separated from him. And in God is all that is 
good and wonderful and pleasing. That's the way it is because all that is good and wonderful and pleasing comes from God. And so when you talk about spending eternity separated from God, you will spend eternity separated from all that is good and wonderful and pleasurable. We call it hell. Scripture calls it hell. It describes it as a place of suffering and torment and fire and flame and worms that don't die and all these arguments. Is that literal? Is that figurative? I'll just tell you what, whether it's literal or figurative, if you're separated from God and all that is good, which means all other people because relationship is good, that's hell. So why doesn't God do something about it? He did. And he continues to reach out to every person. The only people who will go to hell are those who totally reject what God has already done at great cost to pay the price that they don't have to go there. Some say, well, he should have made it easier. I want to go through this other religion. I want to go through Islam or Buddhism or whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, if you are drowning in the ocean and somebody throws you a life preserver, you say, I don't want that one. I want the blue one. Sorry, this is the only one we got. The blue one's broke. I still want the blue. No. I know it's not politically correct and even some places not religiously correct, but Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. There is no way to the Father except through me. And so one of the most important questions, probably the most important question I can ask you today, are you still spiritually dead? You can go to church every Sunday. You can read your Bible every day. You can pray every day. You can give. You can do good works. Good. Those are wonderful things. That's what we should be doing if we know Jesus. But if you've not surrendered to him and confessed your sins and asked him to be the Savior and Lord of your life, you're still dread, dead, dread, dead, sorry, in your trespasses and sins, and you need a Savior. And I hope that if that's you today, say, I need Jesus. You'll turn to him. The last one, Jesus gives abundant life to everyday life. Jesus gives abundant life to everyday life. Let's go back to our story. It's not in the story. We've got to kind of think uh, beyond the story. What do you think life was like for that widow and her son after he had been raised from the dead? Now, whatever we think about, we don't know for sure because we weren't there and they don't have it recorded. But do you think that maybe there's a little bit more joy there? Do you think that even though life is still life and there's good things and there's bad things and there's frustrating things, that there's still that sense of, you know what? We've got more time together. The mother, I still have my son. I've got someone to take care of me as I continue into my older age. The son, I've been given another chance. I've been given another whatever. You know, God intervened. <laughs> Whoever this Jesus is, God intervened in my life. And, and there's a purpose. There's, can I tell you that even though we may not have been resurrected from physical death, we've not actually died and been raised again, that that's true for all of us. Jesus said in John 10, 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus gives abundant life to everyday life. Now, that doesn't mean a life without problems and pain. We still live in a sinful, fallen world. 
But it does mean that in the midst of this life, we can have a joy and a peace and experience the love of God and our love for one another in God that's different than any other kind of love in this life and for all eternity. To truly live for Jesus in this life is so much better than living without him. No matter what we face. And all the amens testify to the people that have experienced that. And a lot of those amens are coming from older people. We don't have any old people in our church, just older people. So that means they've lived through it. They understand that. They agree with that. I've said so many times, and I say it again to all of you, but especially our young people. God has a much better life planned for you than you could plan for yourself. Live it surrendered to him. Live it surrendered to him. Jesus gives abundant life to everyday life. But there's a last thought I want to bring out real quick before we wrap this up. That this abundant life is available to us, but many times we don't experience the full extent of it. And why is that? This may sound like a paradox, but for us to experience the fullness of God's abundant life, there's certain things in our life that need to be dead. We've been talking about Jesus bringing dead things to life, but there's certain things in our life that should be dead and they're not. And it's really up to us. Pastor, what are you talking about? When we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, He saved us, but we still have our sinful flesh that pulls at us. That's what draws us into temptation. Sometimes we give in and we need to confess and ask God to forgive us, and He wants us to have victory over that. But if we choose to continue to pursue sin and the worldly things in any way, it's going to hinder us from experiencing that abundant life. Those things need to be put to death in our lives. Let me just read you a series of scriptures and talk about this. I just encourage you later today or this week as part of your devotions, because I know every one of you is going to have devotions every day today, right? This week, right? Every day this week, you're going to sit down with your Bible, spend at least a minute or two, you know, make one of it reading Romans chapter 11. But the first four verses, some were saying, well, if God's mercy is so great, we can live however we want because God's going to forgive us. He says, no, 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 you got it wrong. Starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Some people say, let's sin some more because then God's grace is bigger. Sounds like a really good excuse or reason to follow our flesh, doesn't it? He says, that's not the way it works. Verse 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It says baptism is a symbol that just as Jesus died and rose again, we also have died to our old life and have risen to a new one. We need to live out that life. And that sin that we supposedly have died to, we need to leave it dead. And if it's not dead, we got to kill it. Okay? That's why, Jesus, <laughs> that's why Jesus asked us to be baptized as a public declaration. I've died to my old life and I've risen to a new one. All of Romans 6, especially verses 1 to 11, speaks of this need we have to walk or live in this new life by rejecting sin on a daily basis. I quoted a moment ago, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. We often think of that in terms of eternal death, and it's true. But can I tell you that even as believers, whenever we give in to sin, there's something, some little way that death comes into our life. So I don't understand that. Let me just give a couple thoughts. If you sin 
in the way you treat your spouse by being all the things the Bible says harsh or demanding or overbearing and all those kind of things there's something in that relationship that begins to die same thing's true in your relationship with your kids or your parents or any other relationship if you sin in any other area of your life there's something in that area of your life that begins to die now God can, can, can work in that he can through that he can bring healing he can bring help he can bring restoration but can I tell you that when there's sin there's always consequences and the consequences don't always disappear It takes a lot of work to get past them, and sometimes some of them will last until we go to heaven. The wages of sin is death. Death, sin causes death. Romans 8, 13, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Each of us every day as we walk with Jesus... We need to work on putting to death the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh, putting aside those things that are sin. We'll wrestle with them for the rest of our lives. Thank God when we get to heaven with our glorified bodies, we will not wrestle with temptation, sin, any of that anymore. But while we're in this life, we have to. And God has abundant life for us in everyday life, but the extent to which we experience is the extent to which we walk in holiness and incorporating God's power in our life to get victory over sin. Let me read one last scripture because this tells us that this is what God's plan is for us. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It says Jesus paid the big cost. We come to him, we're saved, we're guaranteed an eternity with God, a glorified body, but while we're still in this life, our responsibility now is to keep dying to sin and keep living to righteousness to keep working with God to do the right thing to live this life for his glory so as we wrap this up I just want to ask you are you living that abundant life the first thing you need to make sure of is that you have that spiritual life Jesus your savior but are you working that through is there something in your life some sin that needs to die so that you can live more abundantly Let's all stand together. I'm going to invite my wife, Pastor Jan, to come and our elders to come. Any other members of the prayer team, if you would like to come. And we're going to close as we most often do with the worship team singing. And you can sing along. I always encourage you to respond to what God has spoken to your heart. But we are here to pray with you. If you would like someone to pray with you about. It can have something to do with this sermon today. If you don't know Jesus today and you want him as your Savior and Lord, you want that spiritual life, we'll be glad to pray with you about that. If you're here today and you're not sure where you are in your relationship with God, we would love to pray with you about that and to help you come to that assurity. If you're here because you're having a hard time getting victory over something, we'd love to pray with you about that. And you don't have to share what it is. Just say, you know what, I really need some help. Would you pray with me about this? If you have a need that has nothing to do with the message, you need healing, or maybe you want to come and say, would you pray with me about my son, my daughter, my parents, some other loved one? We'll be glad to do that. But we're going to take a couple moments to do that. And then afterward, either myself or my wife will come back to close the service. But let's focus on what God has spoken to us about and respond to that. But we're here to pray with you if you'd like prayer today. We're going to close in prayer in just a second. 
We gave invitation for people to come, but I just feel like I need to make one more appeal. It may be for somebody that's online. It may be somebody that's here. But you'd say, you know what? I don't have a relationship with God. doesn't mean you're a bad person. But you've never turned to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins and surrendered your life to him. And you'd say, that's me. Would you pray for me? Would you pray with me? So aren't you going to have us bow our heads and close our eyes? I do that sometimes. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's nothing wrong. We've all done this. We've all had to take that stand and say, you know, I need Jesus. Most everybody who's not raising their hands did it at one time. I said, I need Jesus. I can tell you, I needed Jesus. I didn't care who knew it. But you'd say, that's me. Would you please pray for me? Would you please pray with me? I need Jesus today. I need to change my life. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to live for him. Anybody? Anybody at all? Maybe it was for somebody that was online. If you're online today or you're watching this recording later and that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. Say it in your own words, but to help you come to know Jesus Christ. Can we pray? Father, I come to you today thankful for your word that speaks to my heart. I recognize that I am a sinner separated from you and I need a savior. Forgive me of my sins, Lord. That's what separates me. I'm sorry for them. I want to leave them behind. Please forgive me, not because I deserve it or I can somehow earn it, but because that's what your word says, that Jesus died to pay the price for my sins. So I'm looking to Jesus. I'm putting myself in Jesus' hands. I'm trusting in what Jesus did. And I ask that you forgive me because of what Jesus did. And I surrender my life to you. Help me to live for you, Lord. Put your spirit inside me, Lord God. Guide me and lead me and help me because I need you. I surrender myself to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, and even if you were here, you didn't raise your hand, but you prayed that prayer, contact me. We want to help you grow in that new relationship with Jesus Christ. God bless you. Greet one another. Love on one another on your way out. And be Jesus to your world this week. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 